All right, well, it's good to be back here at our super study on Wednesday night, and I uh, want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to Psalm 23, where we've been studying the first three weeks, and we've got three more weeks to go, covering six verses, six weeks, six sermons, and so we're on number four uh, tonight. And so let me just read it uh, again to you, Psalm 23. I know some of you already have it memorized, you, have it, you know it by heart, but the question we're going to ask ourselves tonight and, and forced to deal with tonight is, do you believe it? You may know it, you may be able to quote it, but do you actually believe it? And how you deal with life's trials uh, is really the proof of whether or not you really believe what this psalm says. David writes, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you're with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, we come to you tonight, and we thank you for your precious word. We thank you that it never returns void when it's uh, read or uh, explained, but it always accomplishes the purpose for which you uh, inspired it to begin with. And uh, I pray that you would uh, be at work in all of our hearts tonight as we hear your word explained and applied, that your spirit would illuminate us to help us to understand what this uh, verse that we're going to look at means and then how it applies to our lives. I pray you'd be gracious to me, Lord, uh, as uh, feeling like I'm um, preaching tonight beyond my experience in many ways. And so I pray that your word would um, have its intended effect For your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a hundred years ago today, Death Valley, California became the hottest spot in the world. On July 10th, 1913, the thermometer in Death Valley rose to 134 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the highest temperature ever recorded on planet Earth. And uh, today, well-known meteorologists and a slew of weather fans have converged in Death Valley to celebrate this 100th anniversary of what is commonly referred to as hell on earth. This desolate, sun-scorched region is the last place people would want to be. In fact, several summers ago, we broke down not far from Death Valley in the Mojave Desert. It was not a pleasant experience. Not something I'd like to do again, although Jacob thought it was pretty cool, thought Barstow was cool. The flea market there, nothing like he'd ever seen before, and after spending three days cooped up in a hotel there waiting for our transmission to get replaced, we're all getting in the car and we're driving out of town, getting on the freeway, and all thinking, man, we're so glad we're out of this hellhole, right? And Jacob from the back seat says, hey, Dad, that was really fun. Can we come back here someday? And I'm like, dude, you don't get out much, do you? <laughs> so anyway, no, he just had a great attitude. I loved it. it was all con- I, was, I was honestly, I was really convicted <laughs> that I was having a complaining spirit, and here he was having a great time, just making the most of it, right? 
But uh, most people purposely avoid traveling through the hellish climate of the Death Valley region for fear of dying from the harsh elements. I mean, you can literally die out there because it's so stinking hot. And I think it's, it's, it's the same for most of us when it comes to, to valleys in our lives. We purposely avoid them at all costs, right? But God providentially leads us through difficult times and scary situations in all of our lives. And when he does, we need to know that we have nothing to fear because he has promised to never leave us or forsake us in the midst of the trials and the tribulations that he sovereignly ordains for each of us. And tonight, we're going to see that principle in verse 4, which is the halfway point in the 23rd Psalm. This is probably the most familiar verse of Psalm 23 and possibly the most familiar verse in the whole Bible, save maybe John 3.16. How does this sound? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That verse has been quoted and printed at countless funerals to provide comfort and hope to those grieving the loss, the grieving the loss of a loved one. I probably would say uh, of all the funerals I've been to, uh, funeral homes, things that they print, uh, put in print, this is, this is the number one passage right here, Psalm 23, verse 4. Untold numbers of people have found solace and strength in this verse to deal with all the difficulties and disappointments and dilemmas in their lives. We learned last time, a couple weeks ago in verse 3, that our shepherd restores our soul and he guides us or leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And so ultimately, God is about his name, his reputation, and so he's constantly leading us, always leading us, uh, according to uh, paths that he wants us to go down that will bring him the most honor and glory. And uh, too often, we, we give God a bad rap. We're not the best witness, right, for the Lord. And so he will oftentimes put us through trials and tribulations to perfect us, to mature us, and to conform us more to the image of Christ so that we make him look good instead of making him look bad, right? And so one of his uh, prime ways of growing us and, and making sure that, that his name and his reputation are not, uh, are not dishonored by his people is he, he grows us and matures us through trials. And so God leads us in right paths that he wants us to go. And some of those paths, like I said last time, are not what we would choose for ourselves. But we can be confident that he knows what he's up to. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's best for his reputation, his namesake, and also how, uh, what's best for us, how to get us where he wants us to be, where he, where he wants us to be in our lives. Uh, one of the books that has been really encouraging, encouraging for me uh, to read through is this little booklet called Psalm 23, The Song of a Passionate Heart by a guy named David Roper. Listen to what he says in this regard to the paths that God takes us down. He said, quote, the path by which God takes us often seems to lead away from our good causing us to believe we've missed a turn and taken the wrong road. That's because most of us have been taught to believe that if we're on the right track, God's goodness will always translate it into earthly good, that he'll heal, he'll deliver, 
and we'll be exempt from disease and pain, that we'll have money in the bank, kids that turn out well, nice clothes, a comfortable living, and a leisurely retirement. In that version of life, everyone turns out to be a winner, nobody loses a business, fails in marriage, or lives in poverty. But that's a pipe dream far removed from the biblical perspective that God's love often leads us down roads where earthly comforts fail us so he can give us eternal comfort. I think that's important for us to keep in mind um, that as we faithfully follow the great shepherd of our souls, he will surely lead us beside quiet water, so lead us in green pastures, but he will also inevitably lead us through dark valleys. And it's usually in life's darkest valleys when we become closest to him. The darker it is, the closer we are. And during the summer season, when the snow finally melts on the mountaintops, a shepherd will traditionally lead his sheep to that prime grazing land available on the higher ground. However, the best route to get to these alpine meadows, it was oftentimes through treacherous ravines and dangerous gulches, which posed many threats to sheep. And it was during these precarious journeys when the sheep would walk most closely with the shepherd. And the shepherd would provide the closest care for the sheep. There was a sense of intimacy. And we see that here in verse 4. And one thing I just want, to notice, uh, want you to notice right off the bat is notice the change in the pronouns here that David uses in verse 4. Up until this point, he's been saying things like, uh, verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But then notice this, verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for, doesn't say he is with me, for what? You are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so a very subtle transition here uh, between uh, the third person, he, to the second person, you. And I think what we can discern from that is David went from talking about the shepherd in verses 1 through 3 to talking to the shepherd in verse 4. And listen to what Roper says here about What's going on here in verse 4? He quotes Richard Foster who says, God becomes a reality when he becomes a necessity. That's a good quote, isn't it? God becomes a reality when he becomes a necessity. In other words, when you don't need him, right? When everything's going great, when everything's easy, right? You're fine. God's not a necessity, right? And then if he's not a necessity, he's not a reality. But when you really need him, right? He becomes a reality. He goes on to say, The dark valleys make God more real to us than ever before. How many times have I heard from those who have endured intense suffering that the experience of their pain has cured them of the idolatries that once robbed them of joy? The father who abandons us, the spouse who leaves us, the financial catastrophe that ruins us, the rude interruption of our plans, the revelation of a horrifying illness, the painful prolonged delay, all escalate our love for God. All are, all are His ways of prying our fingers from the things that are false and that will not satisfy. They pull us away from lesser loves and enlarge our intimacy with our shepherd. 
which is what brings us peace and unimaginable joy. He says, we're inclined to fix on the valley and its pain, but God chooses to look forward and anticipate its effect. He deals with our divided hearts through disappointment, grief, and tears, weaning us from other loves and passions and centering us on Him. We learn to trust Him in the darkness when all that is left is the sound of His voice and the knowledge that He's near. When all we can do is to slip our hand into His and feel the familiar clasp of things divine. Sometimes that's all we can do. The dark days cause us to enter into a very special relationship with our Lord. As Job said, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. There are glimpses of God that can only be revealed when earthly joy has ceased. And then he says this, all of life is consummated in loving God. That's what we were made for. That's where ultimate satisfaction lies. If that's true, and I firmly believe it is, then although it is often hard to do, we should welcome any valley that leads us closer to Him. That's not easy to do, is it? To welcome the valley, to embrace the trials as not enemies, but as friends that are going to be used by God to make you closer to Him, to make you more intimate with Him. But that's really the spirit of this verse. Um, And so what I want us to see, and I've just broken this verse up into three sections. There's really three phrases. The first phrase, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, is God's providence in life's trials. God's providence in life's trials. And the second phase, or phrase there, I fear uh, no evil, um, for you are with me. That's God's presence in life's trials. And then the last phrase, your rod and your staff, they come from me, is God's protection in life's trials. So let's look at those three uh, points tonight. First of all, God's providence in life's trials. Notice again, this is coming in the context of verse 3. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. In other words, there's an assumption here that part of God's leading and direction and guiding in life is going to include going through some valleys. And uh, when, when we read this, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this is typically interpreted as a reference to what? To death. That's why this verse is quoted all the time at funerals. Um, But literally, this verse reads, even though I walk through the valley of deep darkness. And so David, I think, had in mind not only death, which is life's ultimate trial, life's ultimate tribulation, the thing that most people fear most in life, right? It would be death, but it's also referring to all the trials that we must go through in life before we die. And so this is not just, this is not just one final valley, one valley, the valley of death. This, is not only, this doesn't only apply to you on your deathbed, okay? This, this applies to many valleys, um, all the, the hard and scary situations that God ordains for our lives could be likened to valleys. Again, Roper says this, the valleys bring to mind the day an employer says, clean out your desk, you're fired. When the doctor says your baby will never be normal. 
when you find the stash in your son's closet, when your teenage daughter tells you she's pregnant, when the daughter says you have cancer, or excuse me, when the doctor says you have cancer, and when your spouse says they want a divorce. All those are valleys. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay, these are, these are, these are just some examples of, of life's valley where it's, where it's hard to walk. It, it, it's, it's any place where it's hard to walk, it's hard to see, there's not a lot of light, the sun is blocked by the surrounding uh, circumstances, the jagged cliffs, there's lots of shadows, you're prone to fear. So basically this is talking about scary situations, death, and, and, and the word shadow there. Uh, is, is uh, again, to, to imply there's, there's danger, there's, 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 there's fear here. So any scary situation, we, we prayed for three scary situations tonight, didn't we? We prayed for Robin's situation, we prayed for the Aldaffer's situation, we prayed for Peggy's situation, okay? All three of those are examples, I think, of walking through the valley of the shadow of death. But notice they call it a shadow, of death. It doesn't say I walk through the valley of death. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Interesting that while shadows oftentimes spook us, they can't do anything to us. There's no substance to them, right? A shadow's just that. It's just a shadow. Spurgeon said the shadow of a dog can't bite you. The shadow of a sword can't kill you. And the shadow of death can't destroy you. And so it's interesting, just this whole idea of a shadow, the shadow of death. I'll never forget reading about Donald, uh, uh, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who is the famous preacher of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. And uh, he lost his wife at a relatively young age. And he was trying to come up with an illustration uh, which he was a master of. He was a master of illustration. So he was trying to come up with an illustration to help his three small children understand what had happened to their mom and give them some hope that they would see her again. And so they were driving home from the funeral, and it was near the end of the day, and all of a sudden this huge semi-truck raced by them, and because of the location of the sun, the, the truck cast its shadow on them, and it startled them. And Barnhouse knew he had his illustration. And so he asked his kids, he said, hey kids, would you rather get hit by a truck or the shadow of a truck? And he went on to explain to his kids, guess what? Mommy didn't get hit by a truck. She didn't get hit by death. She got hit by the shadow of a truck. We didn't die, did we? In that scary moment when that shadow came onto our our car. Why? Because it was just the shadow of the truck. And I thought it was a brilliant illustration um, to help us understand, right, that when we die, we're going to talk about this at the end, um, Jesus said, we'll live. Amen. Notice one other thing here, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Notice he didn't say, even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death. The fact that he said through meant that you're going to go in one side and what? Out the other. That no temptation, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, has overtaken you, but that which is common to man, and God is faithful, Right? He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every trial, with every temptation, he'll provide a way for you to escape, right, so that you can endure it. So that there's hope here that, that part of God's providence in trials is God does not only lead us into trials, he leads us through trials, he leads us out of trials. And so even though 
we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God's providence and trials. Secondly, I fear no evil for you are with me. Here, David's talking about God's presence in life's trials. God's presence in life's trials. One of the common characteristics of sheep is that they tend to be skittish and scared, easily frightened. They're weak. They're timid animals. They're defenseless. So they have reason to be afraid. Uh, They're they're helpless. And uh, guess what? So are we. And that's why we, as human beings, one of our biggest problems that we deal with when we face trials and tribulations is what? Fear. Fear is one of the most common emotions that every one of us experiences in life. And our society knows that. That's why they exploit our fears. They, they play off our phobias, right? That's why shows like The Fear Factor, right, are so popular. Like they, they get you to do something that you're scared out of your mind to do, right? They play with your fear. Or the new one I just was watching with our kids the other day, Total Blackout. Right? We have to walk into this pitch black room and feel around and touch stuff and people are ah, screaming and stuff. And uh, it's just freaky, right? It's, it's fear. It's one of the phobias we have of the dark, right? We're scared of the dark. And so, you know, and, and plus our society is making a killing on phobias. I mean, I'm talking about making money. The psychology industry and the, the, the pharmaceutical companies are making a, a killing financially on phobias. They're, they're coming up with all these phobias, uh, which is basically a, an irrational fear or, or dread, whether it's real or imagined, that causes an individual to avoid certain places or objects or situations or people. And it's so uh, sometimes it even results in physical uh, uh, things like increased heart rates and elevated blood pressure and rapid breathing and, 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 and sweating and, 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 and difficulty sleeping. And listen, I, I, was exp- I can relate to, to fear uh, because Kel and I went through the Northridge quake in California in 1994. And I'll tell you what, that was the most terrifying moment of our lives. And it wasn't just terrifying while it was happening. Okay, two weeks later, when we finally came back to our apartment and, and had it all back together again and it was safe to come back in and we had set everything back up, cleaned up all the mess, and, and we got in bed that first night, two weeks later, we were scared to turn the lights off. I mean, seriously, we were scared to turn the lights off because it, was, it happened at 4.31 in the morning. It was pitch black. The last memory we had of being in that bed, in that, in that, in that bedroom, was thinking we were going to die. And so we slept with our light on probably for the first few days. We were freaked out. It was, there was this fear. And I, for the first time, I, I could really appreciate and relate to people that have fears. Um, and so what is fear? Well, I think God created us with an emotion called fear to protect us from danger. You think about this. Fear keeps us from going and doing stupid stuff, right? It kind of keeps you from going too close to the edge of the cliff, right? You kind of just kind of go up there and kind of do one of these things, right? That's, that's good. That's safety. It keeps you from driving like a wild man, right? But fear should never keep us from obeying God's commands or cause us to disobey His commands. And that's when we know that our fear is sinful, right? There's such a thing as healthy fear, right? 
but our fear can turn sinful. And when a person is controlled by their fear, they're not trusting God. They're not doing what the psalmist is is talking about here. They're depending on themselves to control the situation instead of putting their faith in God and believing that he is sovereignly in control of every situation. And so their wrong thinking leads to feelings of fear which take over. And so rather than seeking to please God by doing what is right, right, they, they, they act according to their feelings, their emotions. And I just, I just throw this out because I've just, it seems like I've heard this a lot more recently, in recent days, this, this thing called a panic attack. Have you heard of that? Uh, or, or a panic disorder, if you want to, or, or I guess they call it an anxiety disorder. Um, and, and this is, uh, again, I want to be sensitive to anyone who may deal with worry and anxiety, but I want to suggest to you that... A panic attack is no different than a lust attack. It's no different than an anger attack. It's no different than a lying attack or a stealing attack. Or you fill in the blank with any sin that you struggle with. Since when do we take sins like anxiety, fear and anxiety, which the Bible tells us not to be afraid. Some 450 times in the scriptures, it says, do not be afraid. And so if we disobey that, what is it? It's sin. So when do we all of a sudden let ourselves off the hook, right? You guys wouldn't, if I said, hey, you know, guys, I just, I just, everyone's, I just have this gluttony attack. Just comes on me. I just can't control myself, right? As if that's some disorder that somehow, uh, you know, no, it's sin, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing, but with prayer, right? With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace that passes all understanding, which you lack when you're freaking out, right? And you're panicking and being anxious and worrying, right? The peace that passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And so the key is when that anxiety comes on, which is real, by the way, it's real, I'm not saying it's not there, it's real. That fear, that anxiety, that, that sense of panic, right? Uh, that's real. So the question is, what do you do with it when it happens? Well, I think you deal with it just like you would any other sinful, tempting situation. You begin to pray about it, right? You take that, that whatever's making you anxious and you, you turn that into a prayer. And the first thing that should come out of your mouth is, God, thank you for this opportunity to trust you. Because it says, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, right? So the first thing you should be saying is, thank you, God, for this opportunity to trust you. And Lord, would you help me right now to, to trust you in this situation? And Lord, this thing that I'm worried about or this situation that I'm anxious about, Lord, I just entrust it to you. And I ask that you would be in control of this situation. I know, in fact, I know you're in control of this situation. And just would you grant me that peace that passes all understanding right now? In other words, peace that doesn't make sense. How can you be so peaceful and not freaking out in the, in the situation you're in, right? It's a peace that passes all understanding. It doesn't make any sense. And so I just think that's a, a, an example, a, a very practical example in our society today where society has told us that it's okay, right, to have panic attacks. And the way to deal with it is psychotherapy or medication, right, instead of applying the principles of God's word to deal with sinful anxiety.
And, and I would say bottom line is a person, if they're dealing with that kind of sin, they're not believing Psalm 23. Don't take my word for it. Robertson McQuilkin, a, a much wiser and godlier man than I'll ever be, uh, uh, he used to be the president of Columbia Bible College, and uh, he talks about this missionary, this young missionary gal, a single lady who was dealing with all this anxiety. And here she was, a godly woman with, with, with a missionary serving the Lord, but she had all this anxiety. And he simply kept asking her, do you believe that the Lord is your shepherd? And she said, of course I do. And, and he, he walked her through Psalm 23, and he says, well, listen, you know Psalm 23 by heart, but you're not believing it. And for the very first time, it's like the, her eyes were opened, right? And the light switch went on. She says, you're exactly right. I've known that verse since I was a little girl, or this passage since I was a little girl, but I'm not applying it, right? I'm not putting it into practice in my life. And so God used him to, to help her see through her anxiety. Well, listen, there's tons of verses about fear. I fear no harm or evil. Another way to say evil would be harm. I fear no harm, for you are with me. Listen to just some verses. And if you are one who struggles with fear, um, you want to write down some of these verses, because these would be great verses for you to meditate on and memorize. Uh, Genesis chapter 28, verse 15. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. That was God talking to Jacob. How about you remember Joshua? Uh, Joshua chapter 1, uh, verse 5. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. In verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Back in Psalms, Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? How about Psalm 46? This is a good one. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Verse 10 of of Psalm 46, cease striving, stop being anxious, stop worrying, and know that I'm God. How about Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41 is a, is, is a good, good reference here. Isaiah 41, verse 10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, surely I will help you. Verse 13, for I am the Lord your God, who holds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. Verse 14, do not fear, I will help you. I'm your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And then how about this one, Isaiah 43? You've got you to gotta know this one. This is really, really good. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord your Creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Do not fear, verse 5, for I am with you. How about the New Testament? Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Jesus said, and lo, I'm with you 
even to the ends of the age? Um, how about Romans, Romans 8? Again, talking about how we shouldn't fear. Um, Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things if God is for us who is against us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. We have nothing to fear. And then lastly, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Hebrews 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being intent in that which you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So see the connection? Why shouldn't we fear? Because I am with you. Do you see the connection? He doesn't just say, hey, stop worrying. Stop being anxious. Okay. No, he says, I'll tell you why to stop being afraid or why you shouldn't be afraid because I am what? With you. So we have nothing to fear. Why? Because the Lord is with us. This is the key. It's the, it's the nearness of God, the, the closeness of God, which was very important to David. One commentator said this, it was not blessings that David wanted, but God himself. The best and holiest men of any generation have earnestly prayed for the enjoyment of God's presence as the very strength of their heart, the foundation of their joy, and the center of their existence. The reality of God with us will make a difference to the sort of Christian we will be in our daily work, and our daily walk. It will affect how we cope with life's trials and tribulations. Victorious Christians, or victorious Christian living, is living in the presence of God. So if you find yourself fearful and anxious a lot, worrying all the time, it's probably because you're not practicing the presence of God. You're not consciously aware that, listen, God is, a, is very real right now. He's, he's right here. His omnipresence, His omniscience, because it's His presence. God's presence is what overcomes fear. Knowing that God is with us, no matter what we go through in life, has a calming effect on us. And so we don't have anything to fear because we know that, number one, God led us wherever we're at, whatever situation we're in, right? God's sovereign over that, and he will be with us through that, whatever trial it is that he ordains for us, to protect us and to guide us through it. So we can trust God even when he leads us into scary places. That's what he's saying. I will fear no evil for you are with me. That's God's presence in life's trials. And then lastly, let's look at God's protection in life's trials. God's protection in life's trials. He says, I fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the rod and the staff, they were the shepherd's two main tools to protect and direct the sheep. It's you could call them the club and the crook is what uh, they were. Uh, the, the club was used to fend off or beat down wild animals like lions or bears. You remember David talked about that when he was a shepherd, right? And he came up against Goliath and, and Goliath was talking smack, right? And, and he says, listen, man, I'm going to make you, I'm going to do to you what I did to that bear. I'm going to do what, you did, did, did what, I, what I did to that lion with my club. And so they would actually, and these little shepherd boys are really good with these clubs because not only do they use them as, as weapons, they use them as, as, as a hurling device. They'll, they'll whip them like across the field and hit something. 
So this club is a, is, is a, is a really helpful, uh, this rod is a really helpful tool. Secondly, is there's a staff or the crook, which is that, right, that little shape, the little thing with a hook at the end. You all seen that, the shepherd carrying that thing around, right? What's that for? Well, it's for multiple purposes. One is to, to pry sheep loose from thickets. Sometimes they'll get in some rose bushes or something and they can't get out, so they'll, they'll pry them out of that. Um, sometimes it'll just push things out of the way so they don't get stuck. It's also sometimes they'll fall down into the ocean, they'll fall down into a hole, and they'll put that thing down and they'll put it under their stomach and they'll pull them out. It's also used to, to control the sheep and to count the sheep. There's a couple places in the Old Testament in Leviticus 27 verse 32 talks about how every sheep goes under the rod, in other words, uh, or under the, under, the, under the staff. And so every night when a shepherd would lead his flock back to the fold, each sheep would pass under the, under the crook one by one, and he would count them. He'd use that as a counting stick, if you will, check up on each one of them, make sure that none were missing. And F.B. Meyer says this, just beautiful Imagery, he says, this very morning, God touched you with his staff and counted you. You are the destined object of his care. It is likely then that he will suffer you to, or and he asks, is it likely then that he will suffer you to perish or that you would lack any good thing? Listen, when you came out, when you went out of the pen this morning, God counted you. Okay, there they go. All right. And when you come back into the pen tonight, he's going to count, make sure you're, you're in the fold, right? And if you don't, if you don't show back up, he knows, and he's going to go out looking for you, right? So again, he uses this staff, and, and again, the staff was also used to correct and discipline the sheep. So if you don't go under that deal and get counted, he's going to take that thing out with him to go get you, and he might have to tap you on the head or the backside a little bit, right, uh, and kind of get you back into the barn. And so we see this uh, picture of the, the rod and the staff being used as a form of discipline, First um, Corinthians chapter four, verse twenty-one. Paul Paul talks about this. He uses the the reference of the rod. First Corinthians chapter four, verse twenty-one. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and the spirit of gentleness? And then of course Hebrews twelve. We look at it all the time. It seems, but Hebrews twelve talks about the discipline of the Lord. Right? That this is this is a comforting thought. You say, what's comforting about getting spanked? Well, let me tell you what's comforting about it. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father is not disciplined? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers should discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Listen, it's comforting when you receive the discipline of the Lord because that's assurance that you're saved. That you're one of his kids, right? You're one of his sheep. If you, don't get any, if you never get disciplined for your sin, if you can get away with sin and, and have zero consequences, that should, that should not provide you any comfort whatsoever. That should scare you. Because you're like, well, how come I'm not getting, I'm, I'm doing this, I know I'm doing something wrong, I know I'm disobeying the Lord, and I'm not receiving any consequences. Well, maybe because you're not one of His. Maybe you're not one of His kids. 
I, I think those of you that are parents of teenagers, you've heard this before. Well, so-and-so's parents don't make them do that, or so-and-so doesn't do that. And my standard reaction is, I'm not their parent. I'm your parent, right? So honestly, I could care less what they're doing because they're not my kid. I care about what you're doing. And I think God has the same approach with us. So the rod and the staff are instruments of protection. They're instruments of direction and also of correction that should make us feel safe and secure. And so when David says here, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, that the picture here is our great shepherd armed to the teeth. He's got everything he needs for warding off enemies and to keep us from wandering away from him ourselves. And this should provide us with a source of, of peace and comfort. And, and again, it's not about our strength to walk through these valleys, right? It's not about us that, hey, I, valley, okay, bring it on. I can go through this valley. No, it's not about our strength at all. It's about the shepherd's strength and ability. Haddon Robinson said this. He said, quote, A sheep does not need courage to fight its enemies. What a sheep needs is courage to trust the shepherd. He said, when, it, when, it's, when a sheep senses a predator is near, it looks up to see the shepherd nearby, and then it goes back to grazing again. That takes courage. In other words, that's what a great example for us, right? You, you're, here you are, a sheep, and you're just kind of grazing away, and all of a sudden you sense danger. You get some diagnosis from the doctor, or you have a, a problem with your marriage or your family or your children, and you sense danger, and, and it's, you look up, and, and instead of jumping into action, like you look up and to make sure the shepherd's there, and then what do you do? You just go back and keep grazing. The point is you trust the Lord, Right? You don't take off running somewhere, freaking out. You just go back to grazing. And, and again, that takes courage to put your head back down and trust the Lord. To basically just stay on track and keep on doing what you know honors the Lord and trusting Him to take care of you. I think what it may mean for us is that we need a fresh vision of the incomparable greatness of God's love and power that he exercised on our behalf. And that was a problem with the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 4, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah was wanting to comfort the people. God was wanting to comfort the people through Isaiah. Listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Again, the, the point here is your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Verse 10, behold, the Lord will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. And so he just says, it gives a picture of God coming to our rescue, if you will. Verse 21, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and his earth my way is hidden from the Lord? The Lord doesn't see me, doesn't know. 
Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become wearied or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. So the point is tonight, listen, why are you freaking out? Why are you afraid? Why are you panicking? Have you not heard? Have you not seen? Like God's saying, hey, did you miss the memo? Did you not get the memo? Right? That, that God is in control. And he's bigger than whatever you're going through, whatever situation you're in. And you have nothing to fear. F.B. Meyer says, Welcome then, O children of God, each stroke of the shepherd's staff. Get comfort out of every smart. In other words, you're getting spanked, right? Little, little disobedient sheep, right? You're getting spanked. He says, take comfort from every smart. Oh, that hurts. That's smart, right? This is the thought. My shepherd must love me tenderly or he would never treat me thus. And then turn the ear towards him in eager desire to know the lesson he would teach and to miss nothing of the benefits which he intends. So we journey slowly through the valley, learning many a lesson of comfort which we hide in our hearts. And our experiences make us very tender towards the failures and sorrows of others. Hopefully you guys are making your way through the shepherd looks at his 23rd Psalm. Has it been good? You've been enjoying that? And if you haven't had a chance to read any of it yet, listen, just, just go straight to chapter 7. Okay? If all you ever read is chapter 7, it was worth the two bucks you paid for this thing, right? Um. It's the chapter on, yea, though I walk through the valley. And just, I wish I could just sit here and read the whole chapter to you, because it's so, so, so good. But listen to what he has to say here, picking up the thought that whatever we go through in life and the comfort that we receive from the Lord, we can pass that comfort on to others who are going through similar trials. He says, as Christians, we will sooner or later discover that it is in the valleys of our lives that we find refreshment from God himself. It is not until we have walked with him through some very deep troubles that we discover he can lead us to find our refreshment in him right there in the midst of our difficulty. We are thrilled beyond words when there comes restoration to our souls and spirits from his own, grace, uh, spirits from his own gracious spirit. And then he uses the example uh, of his wife's illness. He said, during my wife's illness and after her death, I could not get over the strength, solace, and serene outlook imparted to me virtually hour after hour by the presence of God's gracious spirit himself. It was as if I was being repeatedly refreshed and restored despite the most desperate circumstances all around me. Unless one has actually gone through such an experience, it may seem difficult to believe. In fact, there are those who claim they could not face such a situation, but for the man or woman who walks with God through these valleys, such real and actual refreshment is available. He says, the simple fact is that just as water can only flow in a ditch or a channel or a valley, so in the Christian's career, the life of God can only flow in blessing through the valleys that have been carved and cut into our own lives by excruciating experiences. For example, the one best able to comfort another in bereavement is the person who himself has lost a loved one. The one who can best minister to a broken heart is one who has has known a broken heart. Most of us do not want valleys in our lives. We shrink from them with a sense of fear and foreboding. Yet in spite of our worst misgivings, God can bring great benefit and lasting benediction to others through these valleys. 
Let us not always try to avoid the dark things, the distressing days. They may well prove to be the greatest refreshment to ourselves and to those around us. I'm sure you're familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Turn there as we wrap up. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Philip Keller's simply referring to this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Notice all the times the word comfort is used here. Like this passage is, is like comfort on steroids, okay? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But we, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Notice verse 8, for we do not want to be, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Talking about the trials that he was going through. Verse 10, God who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and yet he will yet deliver us. Do you see that? Who delivered us from so great a peril of death? You see, how does that all work? Well, guess what? The great shepherd of our soul, Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, walked through the valley of the shadow of death all alone. On the cross, he cried out, what? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's why we can have the hope and the confidence, right, that God will never leave us or forsake us because Jesus endured what it's like to be forsaken for sin, and yet he came out victorious on the other side. When, when, when Jesus was in the garden and was pleading with God, if there's any other way, right, let this cup pass for me. I don't want to drink the wrath of God, but not what my will, but yours be done. And, and, and so it was, on, it was in the garden and, and, and on the, when he was on the cross that he, that Christ walked through the valley of the shadow of death. And it says in 2 Timothy 1.10, our Savior Christ abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, it makes it possible for us to never die. In 1 Corinthians, just turn back from 2 Corinthians, just turn back one page maybe to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your what? Sting. 
The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the reason why we die is because of sin. It's the effects of sin. And so the sting of death is sin, but guess what? Christ robbed death of its sting. I got stung by a bee last night. And it was all for this sermon. <laughs> I haven't got bit by a bee like for years. And so I'm mowing a yard with Jacob and I'm just walking out of this backyard into the front yard and all of a sudden something just attacks the back of my neck. Coward. Came from behind. <laughs> all I know is, man, this thing just boom. I was like, Whoa! I grabbed the back of my head, and I just grabbed whatever it was back there, and I just threw it away. I don't even know where it went, but I'm thinking it's dead. If it, was a, if it was a honeybee, okay, if it was a wasp or a hornet, okay, he may still be alive. But I don't know if you know this. It's interesting that while wasps and hornets can sting more than once, because they're able to pull their stinger out without injuring themselves, a honeybee has a special barb on their stinger that keeps the stinger in the skin after a person is stung. And so the stinger, when they pull away, to fly away, the stinger gets torn out of the bee's body as it tries to fly away. And guess what happens to that honeybee? He, he dies. He dies. And so guess what? When, when sin, if you will, when Christ endured the punishment for sin on the cross, he experienced the sting, right, of death. But guess what? It killed sin. It killed death. Death can't, you know, that, that, that whatever stung me last night ain't stung in anybody else, okay? It got me and that's it, right? And that's the same thing with death, right? Because Jesus took the sting of death, you don't ever have to. If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you don't ever have to experience that. You'll never get stung by death. Death can't sting twice if you're a believer. Death is a, a defeated foe. And so we have nothing to fear. We can face death with courage and with hope. John Wesley said of his followers... He said, our people die well. Wouldn't that be great to have that be said of you? That he died well, she died well. What, what, would that, what would it look like to die well? That you're at perfect peace. You're, there's no anxiety, there's no fear. Because you know you're secure in Christ. And that God is with you. And if the Lord is your shepherd, you have absolutely nothing to fear. In life or in death. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, it's so familiar to us, but it's so practical because, Lord, all of us tend to be fearful. That's just part of being a human being. We're skittish like sheep, and sometimes we get more scared of things that aren't even true than the things that are true. 
our imaginations can run wild and we get fearful and anxious about things that, that aren't even true. They're shadows. And so I pray you teach us, Lord, to practice your presence, to, to re- recognize that you're with us wherever we go, whatever we're going through, that you led us there. We're not there by accident and that you're going to walk with us through that. And sometimes you may even have to carry us through that because we lack the strength in and of ourselves. And so, Lord, thank you that you're well-equipped with your rod and your staff to protect us and even to correct us when we need to be corrected, Lord. And so, Lord, help us to um, be people who live well, that we make your name look great and sound great because we live well and that we'd also be those who die well. And uh, so we ask you for, your, for grace to do that. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.